Hey everyone, and welcome back to Country Music Made Me. Thank you so much for joining us once again. On today's show, we are excited to welcome Kimberly Kelly. Now, Kimberly's journey in Nashville began eight years ago, but it began many years before that within the Texas music scene. Throughout the years, she's been riding and navigating the highs and lows of the industry, and it all came together last year when she signed her very first record deal with Toby Keith and Show Dog Nashville. She released her sophomore album, I'll Tell You What's Gonna Happen, earlier in July, and she is super excited to finally get the opportunity to introduce herself to the world. So please enjoy our conversation with Kimberly Kelly. Take me back and paint me a picture of a, I think maybe three, four year old girl standing in front of the family fireplace, giving what appeared to be musical performances. You're actually, did you see that or read that somewhere? I, I saw act- a photo. I was like, you're reading my mind. Um, you know, my sister and I, cause I have an older sister and she's also in music. Um, we just used to stand on the fireplace and sing Garth Brooks songs. But, um, I mean, I feel like every kid does that. I didn't know. I felt like about the time Leanne Rhymes came out and everybody was making a big deal about her, I felt like I could sing along with her, but what did I know? But I mean, it felt like, I mean, obviously now I know like I had a good ear, but I didn't realize that I had a good ear at the time. I felt like I could keep up with her, and but I still didn't really sing. You know, I did like a talent show here and there. And then when I was in high school, I told my mom, I said, I think I can sing. And she said, okay, we'll sing. And I made her turn around backwards and close her eyes. And I sang and she was like, what do I do with this? And um, long story short, I ended up going to the community college in Waco and they have a commercial music program. Right. And before we get there, I don't want to race too far ahead because we do have some things to talk about before getting to community college. Okay. And so one of the first things I want to talk about also within your singing is your pageant days. Oh God. I believe that you were the heart of Texas fair and rodeo sweetheart at one point. Yes. Okay. What that is, is in the city of what you're getting some good questions here, different ones. Um, so in the city of Waco, they have what's called the heart of Texas fair and rodeo sweethearts. And it's just two or three girls from different schools around the surrounding areas. And it's not necessarily, a, it's not a pageant. Uh, you, ha- you go through like an interview process and what you do is you represent the, the fair and rodeos throughout the year. So you may go do different, uh, charity events, but then during the rodeo, you know, you have your, we had a uniform and a sash and you passed out the trophies for the mutton busting, which are the kids who ride on the, the sheep. Um, you may pass out programs. You're just kind of there to help guide people who might have questions. Right. Um, the only pageants I was ever in, there was a Christmas in the country in Lorena every year. And I think I did that a few times until I won it. So I didn't win it the first year. You know, it's like there's only so many girls in the arena. And I think each of us go through it until we at least win it once. But yeah. 
That's awesome. And within this singing, I saw you talk about in elementary school, Santa's holiday hoedown. Yeah. You sang silver bells. Was that sort of your first time singing in front of people? Probably. Yes. As an actual part in something Um, they had, it was the, it was called CE. So creative enrichment or like the gifted class. And every year they put on a Christmas pageant. And that one was, I can't, something, all I remember, I still remember the song, We're Going to Branson. And something was going on in Branson, something was falling apart, and they had to pull it back together. Very Lifetime movie-ish type of thing. But I played a part called Dolly Holiday. (laughs) And so, yes, I had to sing Silver Bells. And I was devastated because I sang the first verse twice. But obviously no one knew, but still to this day, I'm like, if I ever get to make a Christmas record, I have to sing Silver Bells so I can redeem myself. But before that, I had been in one talent show in second grade and I sang That's What I Like About You by Trisha Yearwood. Oh, but nice. yeah, I, I feel like my first performance, so to speak, would probably be that play as Dolly Holiday. Right. And so you mentioned when you first sang to your mom, sort of having her turn around. And so when you were performing at a young age in front of people, were you confident about that? I guess so. You know, maybe because I was in a a cast and I wasn't the only one standing up there. And now thinking about it also, you know, when you do a performance like that, it's dark because the lights are shining on you. I still kind of joke about that now. You work your whole life to get into the big lights. And then when you get in the big lights, you can't see anything. (laughs) You know, everybody's dark. So probably that, you know, it's like somebody saying, putting you on the spot, sing something for me. It's just totally different when you're in a situation like that versus when you're up standing with other people, you know? Right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And now within your musical background, within your family, I saw that. Um, A couple of years ago, you were doing a fundraising campaign to be able to do your album and you found out about your granddad's band, Sterling Lee and the Hearts. Now, I was wondering, was that the first time you had ever heard about that? Was it ever like, was it a thing within the family that you knew about as you were growing up? Definitely knew about it. Um, He, my grandparents owned a bar back in the day Um, and my grandma actually worked at it. but my papa, he sang all the time, recorded records, uh, had a band, played. Um, and he actually, my dad and my uncles also played in a band. And a, a funny story, um, they had a pool table. And at one point they were supposed to be practicing. And my grandpa came home and he had bought a new pool table, but he didn't tell them that. I guess the old one, uh, the other one was old or something. And he got on to them about practicing and made them carry that one out and haul it to the ditch and lit it on fire to try to be like, you should be practicing. But the whole time he had a whole other pool table. He was just trying to get, put the fear of God in him, you know? Oh, that's hilarious. Um, I know, isn't it? Um, But yeah, no, my dad, my uncles, my grandpa, very much a history of music and we all knew about it but in doing that campaign different stories about my grandpa started to come out just different instances like 
I think maybe that one was one of his first recordings. He had gone down to Austin to see his cousin or something and he want, needed a hundred dollars and they gave him a hundred dollars and that helped with the project. Um, so just different, it's specific stories started to kind of come out when I was sharing all of that. Okay. And now your dad, I believe, unfortunately you lost him in January. Yes. Now seeing pictures of him on social media, he just looked like a very hardworking man oh, who for sure. maybe didn't enjoy the spotlight. I, I'm surprised that you mentioned his musical background because I didn't see him as someone who necessarily would be up on the stage and be in the spotlight. So just talk about him and what kind of man he was. Um, you know, you're, I think you're right. He just, he was a hard worker. Um, even with like my sister and I, he wouldn't, he's a man, a few words, you know, you would be like, Hey dad, are you listening? And then he would repeat everything you've just said for the last 10 minutes. But then when he wasn't around us, everybody who would come to his shop, he was a mechanic and, uh, he had a shop at his house and people were there all the time. Um, even outside of his regular job, they would say he wouldn't let us leave without playing the latest song from y'all or anything like that. Um, but I will say, I obviously didn't know him when he was younger because I wasn't alive, but right, yeah. he would get in these moments of where he's telling a story and he absolutely loved being the center of attention. He was a 100% storyteller and a comedian if he wasn't working. So I imagine back in the day when he was a little rowdier, he probably didn't mind being the center of attention. <laughs> but with, I guess, you know, the way we saw him, he was more wanting to turn the spotlight on us. Right. Yeah. And another big influence within your family is your granny Kelly. Granny Kelly. And now talk about her. She's someone who I believe has influenced you quite a bit along this journey. Yes, she, um, you know, having been married to my papa, um, she's just, she's the matriarch of our family. She just has lived so much life and she's still kicking. Uh, she just turned 80, she might've turned 84 in January. I can't remember. Awesome. Um, 83 or 84. And she's just like a pillar of strength, but she, she wasn't necessarily a, a musical influence, but she was married to my papa. She worked in the bars. She lived that life with him. She had children who were in the mute. She's just constantly, you know, I even told her one time I was so afraid. I was like, what if like, I don't get to where I want to be? Or like, what if I don't get to play the Opry, you know, and you're not still here? And she goes, honey, I know what you're capable of. And so it's like, just hearing her say that, it's like, okay, if she ends up passing or anything like that, it's like knowing that they, they know where you're going, where you're headed. It's like, I can keep going, you know? So, and that's what uh, she would want if, if she were to pass. And absolutely, that's what our dad uh, would want. So that's amazing. And within your musical journey, your new album, there's a lot of fiddle going on on that album. And within yeah. the world of fiddling, I wanted to ask you about fiddle camp when you were <laughs> younger and <laughs> what that meant. And also, do you still play? Like, can you still play? Um, I learned the fiddle when I went to community college. Um, at the college, one of the instructors was Dick Gimble and his dad, 
um, is Johnny Gibble, who's also passed. But Johnny played with Bob Wills, who is the, the king of Western swing in Texas. Um, and I, I wanted to play fiddle. And he said, well, while you're learning that, why don't we also learn the mandolin? Because it'll help you with the frets on the fiddle. Okay. Um, and so I took fiddle lessons. And then they're actually the ones that took me to fiddle camp with them. Oh, okay. um, but I can play a few things but I am by no means a fiddler. You know, I, I can bust it out and fiddle a few things, but nobody's calling me to play with them on the road or in the studio or anything. I kind of took to the mandolin. But again, I'm no Bill Monroe either. The solos that I learned, I memorized. <laughs> <laughs> and they're usually the melody. You know, I play solos like Willie Nelson. <laughs> right, yeah. Mm -hmm. And so when you went off to community college, where was your mindset? Like, did you have a mindset of being a musician at that point? I didn't think that you could go to school for music. I didn't understand that. And I actually went to Baylor University for a semester. And then at Christmas, I said, I don't want to go back. And my mom was working at McLennan Community College and said, you need to come over here. They have a, a commercial music program. They have a country band, uh, songwriting classes, all these different things. And so, um, yeah. You know, being from Texas and seeing people just playing shows at uh, fairs and festivals and bars, you know, I didn't, I, I thought that was what you did, you know, but I, I guess I just didn't actually know the step to get there, but going to college for it, I met the guys who ended up being in my band. I learned theory. Um, I was in the country band, which we went out and played a couple shows during the semester, so then that was the natural step. Once I graduated, um, I just started booking shows because I was like, I'm ready. You know, it was kind of like my homework, so to speak. So did you know where you were headed? Like when you started booking shows, did you just sort of look at who had come before you and say, that's what they did. So that's what I'm going to do. Yeah. I just thought, you know, I, I want a record deal. I thought I'm going to play in Texas and I'll just get real popular and then someone will discover me, you know, <laughs> That's, I'm laughing, <laughs> but um, yeah. And then also the um, contests were, were, were getting real popular at that time. There was Nashville star. Um, so I was just doing all different kinds of things, whatever I could do to try to just put myself out there. Right. And there was a moment your new album sort of became a ode to Billy Joe Shaver, who yes. you've had a chance to get to know very well over the years throughout your journey. Now, there was a moment, I believe it was around 2005, that he pulled you up on stage at one yeah. of his shows to play mandolin. Now, where did that fit into this journey? Was that during college, after, before? It was right at the end of college. Okay. Um, I was over at a friend's house with Emily Gimble. So it was Dick Gimble, the instructor. He also had a daughter who's my age and we were in the program together. It was her, uh, myself and another friend of ours. And we were making work tapes, which would turn out to be my first record. Oh, okay. um, because that was also, it was like, well, if I'm going to go play these bars and festivals and fairs, I got to make a record. So right. um I had learned all the tools in college, how to write a song, finish a song completely. So I was, I was ready, you know? Um, and we were over at this guy's house making these work tapes and a family friend called and said, where are you? What are you doing? 
I have Billy Joe Shaver with me and I didn't know who he was at the time, which I think um, is what enabled me to have the type of relationship I did have with them because I might've been starstruck and it would have been a totally different story. Um, right. Yeah. But she brought him over to the house and I played him a song and he was like, well, yep, that's good. He's like, all right, I'll be in touch. And so this was a Tuesday um, that evening Debbie, the family friend, she said, girl, I've got the CD and he's marked all over it. Songs you need to learn by Saturday. So I went back to school the next day and I was like, drop everything. I got y'all teach me how to learn the, you know, cause one of the songs was just a mandolin. Um, and I'd only been playing the mandolin for a couple of years at that point. So, um, Dick Gimbal, he really taught me that lick really well. And I was ready by Saturday to play at Antone's with him. Um, and so, you know, that also, he was kind of the first person outside of my family, the college instructors who kind of said, Hey, you know, a well-known, like a artist, you know, well-established, you said, put their stamp on me and said, this girl has what it takes, you know? So, and I hadn't even really thought of it that way until we started doing this project. And my husband said that he was like, you know, he really kind of was the first person to like, outside of your your own circle who had a, a become something to be like this girl's good you know right so, yeah but yeah that's it was at the end of college okay and then the journey with your sister it feels like that was sort of maybe your first dip into nashville was yes. singing backup harmonies for your sister mm-hmm. now talk about that journey with her and did you grow up alongside her sort of with that love of music and both of you sort of knowing that it meant something more to you than other people maybe, or did it not come until sort of your college days that you both realized, Hey, this is really what we want to do. My sister had always written poetry. Um, and then she was just all the time, just my biggest fan. And she was working at a bar and she kind of encouraged me to do it. She was working at a bar. She was singing along to the jukebox or, and the band, they said, Hey, you're really good. You, will you get up and sing with us? And like, she said, Oh no, you need my sister to sing. And so this was when I was in college and she said, uh, come sing with this band. And I was still kind of bashful at the time. I said, no, I'll do it. If you do it, you know, and she hadn't even really sang. And so we both did it. And then she found her voice in it through that. And she ended up going through the commercial music program also. Um, but she's okay. always had more of like a country rock edge. And I will, I've always been more of a traditionalist. And then we both ended up with our own separate careers in Texas. She was in a duo. And then um, uh, I think she went solo for a minute. And then I was over here doing my own thing. And then she ran into a songwriter who brought her up to Nashville. And then she ended up getting pitched for a record deal. Um, and then I was in grad school and when I finished grad school, it was at the perfect time. She said, Hey, I signed this deal. Why don't you come up and sing harmony with me while I'm on the road? Um, so no, we did not grow up thinking that this is where we would be. (laughs) Wow. And so what is that experience like of sort of coming up with her and, and you both doing this? At first, when she was signing that record deal and maybe taking the steps before you of what you saw for your life, was there any resentment there or was it always a supportive thing? 
100% sibling rivalry, (laughs) a healthy dose of it, you know, because you're just, you're trying to claw your way up. And it's an interesting circumstance to be with a a sibling, you know, I mean, um, and you're so close, but yet you still feel so far away from it. Right. Um, but it ended up being the best experience because, um, and when I say sibling rivalry, I mean, we're simply, I mean, there's going to be, we don't hate each other. We love each other. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, and I, you know, it's one of those, I would absolutely do anything in the world for her and, and her for me too. Um, but yeah, that's natural. I think anybody feels that way, but through that experience, I was able to become an even more confident performer because I was in the background and I didn't have a heavy job while I was on the road with her. You know, I just had a few lines I needed to sing. She was carrying the weight. So I got to watch these enormous crowds follow her and be willing to go anywhere that she wanted to take them. And so when it got back to the point where I was doing my own shows again, I had in the back of my mind, like these people aren't waiting for me to fail. They're here to have a good time. So the nervousness kind of subsided. Um, And I wouldn't have been able to have taken that perspective if I hadn't been singing backup for her, because you don't get to watch a crowd from that angle in any other way, you know? Right. Uh, But she 100% right now is my go-to as far as, you know, what was this like for you coming up? Um, it's, it's just, I kind of have, um, different expectations going into my record deal, her having already had one, you know, things to get super excited about and things to just kind of take in stride. It's not everybody gets that either. And we're not the first siblings to do it. You've got Loretta Lynn, Crystal Gale, the Mandrell sisters. I mean, it's, it's it's really neat and how many families can say that they've had two girls two of their kids in the same family sign record deals it's kind of incredible exactly and so (laughs) when did you make the official move to nashville um eight years ago uh 10 years ago i was going back and forth on the road with my sister and then um i ended up moving full-time two years after that Okay. And so I saw that your first full band show was a showcase at 12th and Porter in October of 2014. So at that point, that would have been right around when you moved there. What were your expectations as an artist at that moment? Do you remember? That I had been working with these people and written all these songs and I was about to get pitched and I was going to get a record deal. (laughs) You know, I've been here a couple of years back and forth. I'm writing with these really great people. I've got some great songs and I'm just the next best thing, you know? And how long does it take to come down from that? Uh, I mean, I guess it depends on everybody's journey, but um, really don't take long at all because within the next two weeks, you're not signing a record deal. <laughs> what do you think? Like, even if you do sign a record deal, it really feels like within this career, because you're always looking to what's next, what's next, even if you do take those steps, sometimes you can still feel let down at the end of the day, right? 100%. Yes. Um, I feel 
like it, it's constant ebbs and flows. I mean, there's even times now that I've signed my deal that you feel that way. But I think what's helped me not get too wrapped up in that is I worked my speech pathology job the whole time I was up here. So, you know, I had something else that took enough of my attention that I couldn't worry constantly. And Erin Enderlin, I wanted to talk about her because she has been a big supporter for you along this journey. Just talk about your relationship with her and how important it has been. You know, Erin was on my list of people that I would love to write with. Um, and then I got to town and a few years later, she came up to me at a writer's round and was like, I think you're so good. And I'm going, oh my gosh, Erin Enderlin is telling me that, you know? And uh, we just started writing and became good friends and played shows together. And she has such a unique story and she's such an incredible songwriter and she loves the history of country music. We just, we, we're just two kindred country music spirits. Um, and yeah, I love her. She's gone through the trenches separate from me. We've gone through some together and that's what happens. I think when you're here long enough, you start to find your tribe and she is absolutely part of my tribe. She is, I respect her so much as a songwriter and I know so many other people respect her and to know that she thinks that of me is really encouraging. And she has stories for days that she oh. can tell about the all the amazing experiences that she has had within this career. Yes. Now, I know that for you, you have had the opportunity to enjoy in some of those amazing experiences. <laughs> so what is that like to see someone like that who, like, I think it's through hard work that she is able to have all these amazing experiences. So does that really help elevate you in seeing, wow, look at what she's doing and, and how hard she's working. I have to yes. do that. You know what? That's a really good way of putting it. It's, she just hasn't quit. So, you know, I don't, you're asking me, I probably, I like to say I'd quit, but I probably wouldn't quit. <laughs> she, I'm so proud of her now that you're like, I love her so much. She doesn't, she is just incredible. And I think those are the people that carry the tradition of country music along, you know, the ones that just eat, sleep and breathe it. And you're never quit. I mean, 2017, you want to record an album. And so you set up a crowdfunding campaign. Now, what was that experience like as an artist in setting Ooh. that up and not knowing what's going to happen? Like, I don't know if I'm going to raise this money. And right? you did raise it in the end. But what yes. was your thought going through that if you didn't raise enough money? Well, I chose the one that you get to keep whatever you raise. Oh, okay. It's called Indiegogo. Um, I just had reached the point where I thought, I love country music and I want to make some more and I'm just going for it. And enough people had done them at that time that I wasn't afraid to do it. And then I had some people around me who were like, just do it. You'll meet it. Um, and I worked hard. I mean, I messaged everybody, posted about it every day. And, but yeah, it's scary. And also it's, it's humbling because you put yourself out on a limb and you think if I don't, it's going to be so embarrassing, but like more people want you to succeed and they're just busy. They just might not 
see what you're doing every day. Right. Yeah. So I learned that through that experience because I reached out to so many people and they're like, don't quit, keep going. We're so proud of you, you know? And then I, when I hit that goal, I was like, these people love me. You know, I was like, they want me to keep going. So it was an extra bit of confidence that, you know, I don't care if I ever make a record again, I'm making it for these people because these people want it. So it was a mix of emotions. That's awesome. And now it had been eight years since you had released an album. So basically since you, before you had moved to Nashville. So when you were putting together that album, did you really find your, who you were as a musician had evolved because of your time in Nashville and being away from more of the Texas scene during that time? I would think so. I went about making it same way I did this new record. I'm making this as if it's the last record I'm ever going to make. So may the best songs win, you know, and in Texas, it's ingrained in you, like write your songs. Everybody writes your songs. Then you come up to Nashville, you start co-writing. I'm married to a songwriter and I hear songs all the time that I think, Oh my God, why has this not been cut? Um, And living in Nashville and not being married to a songwriter, you hear all those types of songs. And I just thought, I'm going to make a record like the ones that I grew up on. I felt like every song was incredible and I don't care if I wrote it or not. And part of um, that is absolutely growth as an artist, you know, it's saying, Hey, I can write a song, but I'm just, I'm going to be the messenger on this one. Um, but I think that comes from experience 100%. You know, I'm not, I ain't trying to prove myself. I'm trying to put the best music, best songs out that I can. Yeah. You know, I'm not grappling uh, with that inner, inner turmoil or whatever. And now you mentioned being married to a songwriter. Uh, he's a producer. He's an yes. artist, uh, Brett. So talk about your journey with him. And first of all, I want to hear about your first date at Captain D's and what you remember of that date and how your relationship has evolved from there. Okay. We actually met in Key West at, a, at the BMI Songwriters Festival. Oh, okay. we, had, we had common friends. And uh, we, so we didn't write, uh, meet in the writing room and eventually, and you know, when we first started dating, we tried to keep that separate. Um, just, you know, cause I didn't want, I'm very stubborn. It's like, I don't want people thinking that I need Brett to succeed. And then I'm sure he, he didn't want people thinking that he didn't want to push me on anybody, but naturally our camps came together and don't, people don't care about it as much as we did initially, you know? Right. Yeah. Um, but our, we had just hung out with friends and then, um, I had grown up going to Captain D's every Saturday with my family because kids oh, okay. ate free and he had never been to Captain D's. And so he had a gift card and he pulled it out. We were all at a bar and he's like, who am I going to go to Captain? I thought I'll go to Captain D's with you. I, and so it was our first date as a joke. Um, he ended up taking me on a normal date elsewhere, but it was, we just started hanging out in a group and just goofing off and then eventually got more private <laughs> and actually like went on normal dates. But yeah, we went to Captain D's as a, and then we would go every year on Valentine. We haven't been in a while. <laughs> 
<laughs> but um that's how we are we're just goofy that's awesome and what has it been like on this journey to see each other evolve i mean he's evolved into a hit songwriter with number one songs and so what has that journey been like together to just grow as artists it's been incredible um it's so fun because he's getting all these opportunities even just meeting some of the people in my camp um like the other day we got to write with the bacon brothers like kevin bacon and michael and you know that's because of uh the show dog connection and he's David Macias, who runs 30 Tigers, has asked him to produce other projects. And then he is playing my project for people in his world who are like, man, we didn't even know Kim was capable of this, you know? So it's just, we just both put the work in, uh, separate and together. And I would say that's, that's what we do. We're just hard workers. And so it's just so much fun. Um, And we take time out to celebrate each other. You know, he makes me stop and think about what I've accomplished. And I make him stop and think about what he's accomplished. And when my record came out, you know, I kept saying, we put out a record and he's going, it's your record. And I'm going, it's just as much yours as it is mine because you produced it. (laughs) Like, you know, so it's just, it's so much fun. It's, it, we just came to terms with it, that we might be stuck together in that, in that world as well. But we don't, we're not together all the time he's we don't write together all the time so we get plenty of time apart so we're not hating each other right yeah and the new album talk about the process and when it began and your mindset before going into the creation of this album um when I got signed you know they said we love what you just did on that don't blame it on me EP don't change anything um So we didn't, we just went back and I went around to all the publishers I knew. Uh, Brett went around looking for songs again. We wrote some songs and we just, it was myself, Brett, David Macias and my manager. And we just went through songs and picked our favorites and just kept narrowing it down. And uh, I mean, Brett, called a lot of the same players that we'd had on the EP before. And we just had a good time. You know, we just had a little bit more money this time. (laughs) So we got to cut more songs. (laughs) Right. Yeah. And the album starts off with honky tonk town. Now I love the energy of this song to start off the album and Tyler was a co-writer on it. So with that song, did he go into that song, writing it with you in mind, or was it finished? And he just thought, Oh man, this, this is one. He had actually written that song with Jesse, Joe Dylan and Jesse Alexander, hoping to pitch it to John party. Okay. And I remembered it. Um, but not, I only remembered it when he was sitting down going through other songs for something else. And I said, Brett, I remember that song. I said, what are you doing with it? And he's like, I'm just listening back through things. And I said, that I want it. Like, let's listen to it. Cause we still need a tempo, you know? Right. And he said, well, it was written from the perspective of a boy. And I said, we can tweak a few lines in it. Let me listen to it. Um, and so that's what we did. We got together with Jesse, Joe and Jesse and, you know, they tweaked it and I was there to kind of be like, yeah, that's good. That's good. That's good. Or maybe say this. 
I obviously didn't need a co-write on that because I didn't co-write it. I was just helping them tweak it for me. Right. Um, and then we played it for the team and they were like, this is great. It kind of has almost like a Shania vibe, a Chattahoochee vibe. Um, they wrote it with the idea of, um, you know, thinking about guitar town. But they were like, let's write it for uh, Honky Tonk Town. <laughs> and so throughout this album, there is the classic country vibe throughout yes. the entire album. But I found that first fool in line was really the one that caught my attention that really has that like Loretta Lynn classic country feel. And so I wanted to ask you about that song and just the first time you heard it, what you thought of it. I was driving home from work and it made the hair on my arm stand up. It just, the, the melody, the lyrics, it blends so well with the music. It's just an incredibly well-written song. Um, and I got a hold of the plugger who had pitched it to me. And I said, I love this song. And he said, well, uh, there's one thing, you know, it was cut by Don Williams. And I said, that ain't a problem. That just reiterates the fact that it's a great song, you know? So it obviously did to me what it did to you. You know, it just, it spoke to me. It's so good. And to wrap off the album, you have a voice message from Billy Joe on yes. there. Now, when did that idea come? Was that later in the process that you kind of realized what was happening through this album and how it was sort of an ode to him? Yes. Um, we had landed on the title and then toyed with the idea of covering one of his songs. And then I thought, Hey, why don't we just, I said, I've got some voicemails. We should just put one at the end just to, just to reiterate the fact that I actually had a genuine relationship with him, you know? Um, so it, it came later in the process. And how special is it to have it on there? Uh, it's incredible. It's, and I, there was a moment, I will say, where I kind of started second guessing it. And I thought, I don't want people to think that I'm trying to, you know, cause he's passed and he can't speak about it. And I said, I don't want people to think that I'm just trying to get something off of Billy Joe. And then the people who were helping me kind of shape the package said, if people like you who knew him really well, stop talking about him, eventually people will forget about people like him. And I thought, oh my gosh, you're right. You know, I don't get like, <laughs> we're going with it. We're doing it. Um, but yeah, so it was a, it just kind of naturally progressed. Right. And now working with Steve Warner on this record as well, I saw a post you had on Instagram when the album was coming out and he had sent you just a quote for the album and it had you in tears because of what he said about you and your album. So just talk about the dream that it is working with him. I mean, that's the thing. It's you get so immersed in the process and then every now and then you step back and you think oh my gosh this is I know one of my idols at this point and he just said that about me you know so I mean you just kind of have to step back and um I've just been a huge fan of him for so long and we got to write with him and then we were cutting the song and then we got to go to his house and then him and Brett became best friends and we're in his home studio and he's putting guitar on it and we're in a, a text thread together. And it's just, 
every now and then what I do, even with Toby Keith, you know, I'll go back and watch old footage of my heroes. And I try to think somewhere in their future, I exist. And that's what blows your mind. If you look at it like that, you know, because if you're just spending time with them, you kind of calm yourself and get it together. But if you go back and picture them in, in the back, the old days, you know, it's like, I was, how old was I when they were doing this? And like, somehow our paths will cross. And that's what's mind blowing. And within this career of having amazing experiences, I saw back in January of 2015, you posted that you were in Country Weekly magazine with your sister. And that as a kid, that was the ultimate dream. That was it. And so within this career, is it important to remember what five-year-old, 10-year-old you were dreaming about and where you are now? Yes. I have a, a vision board, a dream board. That's exactly what you have to do. You have to, you know, when you're getting text messages or emails or calls or you're stressing out about something, you've got to think, you know, this is what I prayed for. This is what I always wanted. Um, and I just, it's an old Ray Wiley Hubbard quote. He says, you got to keep your gratitude higher than your expectations. And when you think you're done and that maybe your time has passed, I think that might be easier to do. I'm just, you know, when I got signed to my deal, I thought I want to put out a record and I want to play the Opry. And if the chance presents itself, I would love to do a radio tour. Um, but for sure, I want my record to come out because people get signed all the time and records get shelved. Yep. And I want to play the Opry myself. You know, I've sang harmony with others. And, and one of those things has already happened. My record came out. So it's like, I just, I try to think about the things that I've always wanted and not get too caught up in all the extra stuff going on. And I think it keeps me grounded. And within those moments, where did meeting Reba fit within those? (laughs) I mean, that's like a dream. It's, it's not a goal. It's a dream. Um, I mean, that was incredible. I went and played that show and only got paid for the travel, but the whole trip was priceless. Um, I mean, when we left that day, she goes, see you back in Nashville. And I thought, you sure will. You just don't know it. (laughs) (laughs) You know, she was exactly what we expect. She, we went up on her RV when she was getting ready and she said, y'all want to take a picture late? She goes, well, let's take one later when I don't have catfish in my teeth. And she had a big old hot roller in her hair. And uh, ugh, we're just, I need to print that picture. I need to print the picture of us and Kevin Bacon. We're just going to put them on our wall so we can. And Brett has been with me with all of them, you know, yeah. so it's neat. Um, yeah, obviously meeting your heroes is a dream. If you can't have it as a goal. Those are dreams. Right. Yeah. And I think one of your goals I saw back in, I believe it was like the 2012 time frame that you had the hashtag KK50 or KK50 states. Okay. I want before, and you know, this is all part of my dream board. I, and aligning with my branding, that's what's helped me not get caught up with things is I'm like, what's the ultimate goal here? And one of the ultimate goals for me is I want to see the 50 states. Before yeah, and I, I was die. wondering where you've gotten to, how many you've gotten to so far. I, I don't know specifically, maybe like uh, I ain't even to 15 yet. I oh, should okay. be, but I got ways to do. But here's the thing. I saw a lot when I was on the road with my sister, but you only see a parking lot. 
Right. Yeah. You don't get to see. That's kind of where this started. Um, so my ultimate dream would be to make have enough of a music career that it would be so much fun to maybe get to do some type of show and call it like cross country or like KK 50 States or something. And like almost like diners, drive-ins and dives where I get right. to go to these places and I want to see the things of some of the cheesy traveling places like the, you know, I've never seen the Cadillac Ranch in Texas and I should. But then what would be fun also is if I went to go get to play like a theater or on a flatbed trailer that evening for like, so it's music related, you know, right. but then just to show people like, hey, look at these places around the country that you can go to and you don't have to spend a million dollars. And I'll get to meet all these people, but then also get to play music. So that's my goal. That's my dream. That's the ultimate dream. If I can get enough, kind of like, I feel like Miranda Lambert's doing a little bit of that right now. She's gone out. I read somewhere where she said that she's always off in the cold states. And so she took time off this summer and she's going out to, to camp and stuff in her airstream and getting to actually explore and I'm like, that's right about kind of like right along the lines of that um, is I just I want to travel to 50 states before I die and and but also get to play music at the same time. So. Right. And now one more thing I want to ask you about your junior high scrapbook and being part of the Clay Walker fan club. And is that scrapbook still around? Do you still oh, yeah. through it and see where your mind was back then? Oh, yeah. I'm actually currently going through an old chest of things and keeping things, throwing things away, laughing a lot, getting real embarrassed. But I absolutely, my first crush was Randy Travis. And then I became obsessed with Clay Walker so much that um, in the sixth grade, um, there was a boy that came to school. He'd been homeschooled and he was so cute. And I ended up being his first girlfriend. And it was the Valentine's dance and I ditched him to go to a Clay Walker concert. So that's how much I love Clay Walker. Um, it's funny now that I'm actually, I, I, I'm obviously not that obsessed with them anymore. <laughs> that not in a creepy, I still am a huge fan, but um, he doesn't need to like lock his doors or anything. Um, <laughs> yeah. uh, it's just, it's sweet to have all those things. And like, old pictures of him and Patty Loveless when they were on tour together. And now I'm managed by the same manager as Patty Loveless. So it's just, it's wild that it just came full circle like that. That's amazing. Well, the new album, I'll tell you what's going to happen. It's out now. Um, what does the future hold? What does the rest of the summer and into the fall hold? Are there tour dates that are being planned? Yes. Um, I've had a bunch of what are called one-offs, which means you just kind of go play a, a gig here, a gig here. I'm not on a major tour because I got signed to my booking agent uh, later in the spring. And most of those things are getting planned way in advance. And plus, right, yeah. nobody knew who I was yet. I'm just getting announced, you know. Um, but I did get a call yesterday from my manager. And um, I, I think I'm going to get some dates with... Um, an Americana-ish type of guy. Uh, I can't, I don't know if I should say it yet. I, I probably shouldn't, but. Um, don't want to jinx it. I don't know if it's a, a tour necessarily, but I mean, I guess it is because I think I'm going to get about seven dates with him. Oh, awesome. Um, so I'll be doing some one-offs, um, things like this, interviews, just press, just 
introducing myself to people. Um, yeah, that's it. Being ready when people call. <laughs> that's awesome. I find it so funny. You say introducing myself after the journey we just talked about and all that you've been through. And so congratulations on finally getting announced. Yeah. You know, it's, and I think, I feel like if, if I were at any other place in my career, I would be offended by that, but I'm like, no, nope, I know how this goes. Hello world. Here I am. But, you exactly. know, in the grand scheme of things, like a lot of people still don't know who I am. So that's it's but that's what's fun is meeting people. So it, and you're probably never in a career. I bet Reba McIntyre is still meeting people. <laughs> yeah, you know, exactly. so I mean, that's the name of the game. Let's do it. Thank you once again so much for listening. And thank you to Kimberly for stopping by and sharing her story. Be sure to check out her sophomore album, I'll Tell You What's Gonna Happen, wherever you stream your music. Please also be sure to check out us wherever you stream your music. We're available on any streaming platform, so just head over to your favorite, search Country Music Made Me, and give us a follow and maybe even leave us a review if you enjoyed today's episode. You can also head over to our website at countrymusicmademe.com to sign up for our newsletter. There, you will keep up to date on all of our upcoming guests, as well as receive exclusive content like acoustic performances from some of our past and upcoming guests. Just head over to countrymusicmademe.com and hit that subscribe button. Thank you once again so much for listening, and we'll see you next time on Country Music Made Me. Music